Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning, Wildwood family. I want to invite you to turn with me uh, to Romans chapter 1 uh, in your Bibles. If you don't have your Bible with you, we have them right there in the seat back pocket in front of you, and you can find today's passage on page 939. And while you're turning there, uh, I, I see so many new faces. Uh, I just introduced myself really quick. My name is Andy. I'm the missions pastor here at Wildwood and one of the elders, and it is a, a privilege and an honor for me to be able to share God's Word with you today and to be able to bring that to you. For some reason, and I'm already going off script, <laughs> for some reason worship hit me different this morning because of what we're going to look at today. What we're looking at today is an incredibly heavy passage, incredibly heavy. And to sing what we just sung together in corporate worship just did something different today in my heart and in my mind. And I, and I, and I imagine that that's because of what the Lord has been doing in my heart this week as I have studied through this in preparation to bring it and present to you today. And so I want to encourage you to, to, to retain what we're going to talk about today as we sing those songs in worship, and we're going to come back and sing together at the end to truly understand and to know what it is that Christ has done for us on the cross in light of this passage. Let's read it together. Romans 1, starting in verse number 18, going to verse 23. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Church, let's pray together this morning. Father, I pray that today you will honor and glorify your name through the preaching of your word. Jesus, I pray that you will be exalted today in what we are about to look at, that you will be magnified, and that today that every one of us in here, including me, will walk away with such a greater understanding and appreciation, Lord Jesus, for what it is that you have done for us. Father, we love you and we exalt you. And Jesus, for your glory and in your name, we pray. Amen. Amen. In the early 1940s, on a warm morning, very early, 3.45 in the a.m., an alarm clock sounded that wakened two army privates by the name of George Elliott, Jr., and Joseph Lockhart. This alarm went off at 3.45 a.m. every morning in order to signal these two privates to begin a three-hour watch from 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. And this was a routine exercise that, that these two men engaged in every day, a routine exercise to practice their radar skills in plane identification. Now, it was just after 7 a.m. when their shift was technically over, and they were sort of in the normal routine of getting ready to go to breakfast, 
when there was a spike in their radar. Now, normally, this would not cause worry because what they normally do is they practice their skill based on army and civilian aircraft. It was routine for both military and civilian aircraft to be uh, in the area, to frequent the area. But this particular spike on their radar was unusual because the spike in the radar indicated the number of aircraft. This spike was larger than either of these two men had ever seen in their combined experience. So what this spike indicated was that this was not just one, two, three aircraft, but the size of this spike indicated that there were 50 and probably more aircraft. After doing their mathematical calculations, they determined that these planes were roughly 137 miles away, and they were closing in on their position at two miles per minute. So these two army privates begin to debate with one another. It's probably just broken equipment. Something's wrong. It needs to be recalibrated. Or, or maybe we've made some sort of mistake. Maybe we have messed up somewhere. Finally, after some debate, they, formed, they phoned their superiors at Fort Shafter, their army base, which was not too far away. And their superiors told them, just ignore it. It's no big deal. It's an obvious equipment failure or operator error. And so what I have to show you this morning, by way of an illustration, and I know you won't all be able to see it, so I have it on the screen for you as well. This is the front page of the Louisville Times, dated December 8th, 1941. December 8th, 1941, the day after what our former president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, would term a day which shall live in infamy, the day when our Congress declared war, was the day after the empire of Japan laid waste to much of Pearl Harbor. What went wrong on December 7, 1941, that would allow an enemy to come in and to attack in such a way that it would be termed or remembered as one of the darkest days in our country's history? Well, the ultimate error that happened on that day was the failure to heed any kind of warning signal, to carry on as normal as if there was no kind of threat. See, what most people don't know about the attack on Pearl Harbor is that 11 days prior to December 7th, on November 27th, Chief of Naval Operations in Washington, D.C., a man by the name of Harold Stark, he sent a signal to all U.S. Navy outposts in the Pacific. He sent this following message, and I I was going to have it on the screen for you. I unfortunately couldn't get it up there, but I'll read it. Just listen as I read. This is the signal. Harold Stark, he said this, This dispatch is to be considered a war warning. Negotiations with Japan looking towards stability of conditions in the Pacific, those have ceased, and an aggressive move by Japan is expected within the next few days. The number and equipment of Japanese troops and the organization of a naval task force indicates an amphibious expedition against either the Philippines, Thai, or Kra Peninsulas, or possibly Borneo. Execute an appropriate defensive deployment. There was an 11-day advanced warning. So what happened? Where was the breakdown? One of the problems was that the Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor, they, they received this warning and they felt the distance is too great. Japan is so far away from us. There's no way that they could close that distance without us knowing and without us being prepared. Another thing was that the military force there in the fleet prided itself on two things. Number one was the size of the force itself. The size of the fleet, which included battleships, 
aircraft carriers, destroyers, submarines, hundreds of planes. Another thing that they prided themselves on was the fact that Pearl Harbor, if you've ever been there before, I have and I hope to go one day, but my understanding is Pearl Harbor has very shallow waters. And shallow waters are not conducive to torpedoes, which were used primarily in war in that day. So no need to take any sort of anti-torpedo measures. The commander of the Navy, Admiral Husband Husband Kimmel, he dismissed Washington's warning by saying, it's just another boy who cried wolf message because so much transmission had been coming into them. Another army officer interpreted that this threat as possibly coming from the interior that, were, that was native Japanese who were living on the island of Oahu. Maybe this is going to come from the interior. Residents of the island were also accustomed to hearing planes because these, they, they lived on or near the military base, and, and, and that was just another day to hear planes flying overhead. In our previous story, we, we had hesitant army privates and we had dismissive superiors. The downfall ultimately, in my opinion, was this pervasive attitude of don't worry, carry on as normal, because there is no threat. And I think that that is an attitude that is prevalent in our culture today, this laissez-faire philosophy of of what, what will be will be. It comes out in our music in a lot of different ways. The first thing that came to mind for me was don't worry, be happy. Good luck getting that out of your head. I've been singing it all weekend. In our movies, the ever popular Frozen, Let It Go. I didn't even know this until I looked it up. A line that says, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I am free. Today's passage in Romans 1 is an advanced warning. It's an advanced warning that is largely ignored where life just carries on as normal, but the outcome is inevitable. In this particular passage, Paul does not explicitly mention what the results are going to be apart from the statement, God's wrath. But if we look at other parts of Scripture, we can gather a clear picture of what God's wrath does entail. Paul is going to write to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 through 3. He says, For you are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying, Peace and security. Destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Do you believe that our culture and society today are marked by people who believe peace and security? Absolutely. And Paul is giving us this warning now, starting in verse number 18 of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In messages prior, Pastor Brian has, 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 has shown us very clearly that when you see a word like this at the beginning of a verse, for, sometimes the word is therefore, it's always a connection to the previous passage. So what was the previous passage? Last week we looked at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Romans 1, 16 and 17, the gospel of which Paul is not ashamed. This gospel is the power of God, and it is, this, it is able to save anyone and everyone who believes. The Jew first, and also the Greek. And those whom it saves, to those whom believe, they shall live by faith, both spiritually, and they shall live by faith, Functionally, 
meaning that their life will be marked by faith, that they will walk daily in the promises of God. But if we were to just leave it at that, if we were to just pull out Romans 1, 16 and 17, and just look at that and stop there, those two verses in and of themselves beg the question, saved from what? For what reason do we need salvation? What reason is it necessary? And so that's why Paul continues to write, going on to verse number 18. And this is the warning. This is the warning. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. This very idea that God is wrathful, God's wrath, is an idea that it's almost completely ignored in our culture today. Those who are outside of the church who may believe in God or say that there is a God, they don't believe that wrath is, is a suitable and proper characteristic of God. And sadly, that same thought is in many of our churches today where the prevailing attribute of God is love above all things. And let me say, just to be clear, that while love and mercy are absolute immutable, immutable meaning unchanging, immutable attributes of God, we cannot rightly dismiss wrath and judgment as equally immutable. He is loving and He is merciful, but His holy and righteous character also demand wrath and judgment, as we're going to see in a few moments. God's wrath and judgment are perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, and He is perfectly just in His anger toward and against evil. Think about this. The very notion of forgiveness of sins. We, we talk about that. We say that. Sins can be forgiven. The very notion of the forgiveness of sin demands or implies that there is a due penalty for that same sin. Forgiveness of sin implies that there is a due penalty for that same sin. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sin as any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. One commentator notes that this definition, transgression of the law of God, rightly assumes that God's character establishes which actions are good and which are evil. It is who He is, His character, that determines what is right and what is evil. He's the standard of right and wrong. But Western culture, our culture, increasingly rejects the concept of sin, do we not? It does. Because it says... No, if you, want to, if you reprove my sin, then that's oppression. If you, if you want to tell me what is right and what's wrong, it's because you believe that you know what the standard of right is and I don't. And you just want to control my behavior. And you know what? All of those things would actually be true if there was no God. Because it would be just this ongoing power struggle in every single relationship, right? Right? Paul says in this verse that all sin is subject to God's wrath. That's comprehensive. Commentators suggest that there are many, many different ways in which uh, God's wrath manifests against sin. One of those offerings is that it's the conscience, the way that we feel towards certain things. Others suggest that it, it is shown in disease and in illness. Others say that it's the, universal, uh, the universality of physical death. We're all going to die. The Bible tells us that. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, judgment. But ultimately, and I, I believe that all those things are true, but ultimately the wrath of God manifests against sin on the cross. 
where Jesus bled and died. That the wrath of God was poured out on all sin. The same wrath that one day will finally and fully be poured out against anyone who directs their faith towards anything apart from Christ. It's, it's true that not one sin, not one sin can nor will be dismissed apart from the gospel. Paul goes on to write that it is the unrighteousness of man that suppresses the truth about God. What truth about God are we talking about here? That is the truth of His existence, the truth of His glory, the truth of His power, the truth of man's sin, the truth of God's wrath against sin. And so what mankind winds up doing is man uses his, pre his preference for unrighteous autonomy to deny what is clearly made known to all men. Man uses his preference for unrighteous autonomy to deny what is clearly made known to all of us. That brings us to verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because why? Because God has shown it to them. That which is able to be known about God, that which is plainly seen, it's not everything that is able to be known about God, but proving that it is sufficient to know that there is a God. The, the testimony of creation tells us there is a sovereign, almighty, omnipotent creator. doesn't mean it tells us everything there is to know about God. God does not keep himself hidden, but he reveals himself. In theological terms, we call this general revelation. General meaning that for all people, for all, can plainly and clearly perceive certain truths which may be known about God apart from His Word. When we talk about God's Word, that's where we differentiate the two. We have general revelation, the testimony of creation, and then we have special revelation, which is God's Word, and ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ Himself. Alistair McGrath notes that man is very good, we are very good at inventing worlds that we would like to be real. We are good at inventing worlds that we would like to be real. Like Star Wars. I like Star Wars. I like Lord of the Rings. Those are my only two. You might have other things that you like. That's fine. But these are made-up worlds. And the stories are just good in many ways. But what, we, what mankind winds up doing is making up these worlds, inventing these worlds where no one holds them accountable for their misdeeds. Hence, the overwhelming desire to suppress the truth despite its obviousness and despite its clarity. And now Paul is going to say in verse 20 what is shown. He says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. There is no excuse. What is it that's made plain? His invisible attributes. What are his invisible attributes? Namely, his eternal power and his divine nature. Now, this is a very popular apologetic for the existence of God. Maybe many of you have heard this before. It's called the cosmological argument. The cosmo cosmological argument states that there is a creation, therefore there must be a creator. You might have heard it in the framework of, I have a watch, there's a watch, therefore there must be a watchmaker. This didn't just come together by random chance, someone with intelligent design capabilities put this together. 
There is a creation, therefore there must be a creator. Consequently, that is exactly when this testimony of God goes into effect. The beginning. That's what Paul said here. Ever since the creation of the world, Genesis 1.1, creation testifies to the glory and power of a sovereign and almighty God. And Psalm chapter 19, verse number 2, agrees, saying this, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. The power of God, the eternal power of God, the divine nature of God, showing through nature continuously. And because of this truth, Paul says, no man has any excuse, no matter how much he may desire to suppress or ignore that truth. We are given enough simply in the creation of God to know that there is a God. It is impossible that we could ever mistake creation, misidentify a part of creation as the creator. Yet as we're going to see in just a moment, people do exactly that. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul makes it very clear that unbelievers do not know God. Galatians 4.8 is one of those examples which says, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature, uh, by, by nature those that are not gods. Therefore, what Paul is discussing here is limited and impersonal knowledge. How many of you know that it is absolutely possible to know about someone but not actually know them? Right? We all have people that we may admire or look up to or favorite athlete or whatever. Uh, I have particular favorite athletes and I can tell you a lot about them. I can tell you what teams they've played for. I can tell you how many home runs they've hit this year or whatever. I like baseball. And, and so I can tell you things about these different players, but I don't have a relationship with them. They don't call me at home and ask me how I'm doing. I know about them, but I don't know them. And that is what Paul is saying here. It is a limited and impersonal knowledge. And so the unrighteous man who chooses to suppress the truth by his unrighteousness refuses to honor him as God. The unrighteous man refuses to give thanks to him as God simply because he does not want to believe that he is God. He does not want to acknowledge that he is God. And so what is the inevitable result of that? This unrighteous man becomes futile in his thinking. We know that this, this the mind, the mind is the shaping ground of the heart, right? The mind is the shaping ground of, our, uh, of the heart. Where our thoughts dwell, so our heart follows, and what happens is, in the case where the mind is set on a lie, if the foundation of what the mind is set on is a lie, then it's going to drift further and further away from God. Why is that? Because the mind ultimately denies, or I'm sorry, it denies what is fundamentally and clearly, and clearly true. There is a God, and I am not Him. The truth that there is a God and I am not Him. And because of this futile thinking, their foolish hearts are darkened. Commentator Daniel Doriani notes in this, he says, in these cases what happens, futile thinking, the heart becomes darkened, then moral clarity disappears. Moral clarity disappears. Whatever is common seems normal. 
And whatever is normal, it's got to be right, right? Because everybody's doing it. What is common becomes normal, and what is normal seems right. Paul later would write to the church at Ephesus, specifically to Christians, that his desire for the church was two things. He writes to, to the Ephesian Christians, he says, I desire that you attain two things, unity of the faith and unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. Unity of the faith, unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. Why did Paul write that? He goes on to say, it's so that we would no longer be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, nor by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Because when our minds are in that futile thinking mode, we just pinball from one thing to the next. There is no absolute standard of truth. Whatever the prevailing philosophy is of the day, we can get caught up in that. And that is why Paul writes that. Because Paul knew that correct living came from correct thinking. And neither of those things are possible unless it is grounded in the truth of who God is and who we are before Him. Verse 22, Paul says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Such is the result of futile thinking and a darkened heart. Idolatry. Idolatry. And, it's so, and it is possible that, that one can be so far misled that he truly believes that he is wise. Now, that's not to say that, that people like that, I'm not saying that they're stupid in terms of intelligence, because we could stand here today and read story after story of, of brilliant, brilliant academic minds who rejected the idea of God for one reason or another. But Paul says they have become fools because they have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of anything else. And so have you ever wondered, why idolatry? Like, why is this such a tripping point for humanity throughout history? Idolatry, why idolatry? Because I do not want to serve a God in whose image I am created. I don't want to be accountable to his standard. Let me clarify. I'm not talking about myself. You, you understand which perspective I'm speaking from. I don't want to be held accountable to his standard, so therefore what I do is I raise up my own idol. I raise up my own idol. But guess what? That idol is not my God. If I am raising up my own idols, you know who my God is? Me. I am my own God. The God that I am worshiping by raising up my own idols is myself because the idol that I create serves me. It is designed to suit my desire. It is a God that is created in my image. That's idolatry. That is idolatry. I don't create an idol to serve it, but rather I create my idols to supplant the truth of the one true God so that I may rule myself. Earlier, what I called unrighteous autonomy. Therefore, the unrighteous refuse to honor Him as God, and because they don't honor Him as God, naturally, they don't give thanks to Him as God. And so you might think today, <laughs> that is so silly. That is, that is the craziest thing I ever heard. Those savages 
faraway lands who bow down to something that they just carved out of wood or that they fashioned and put together from metal, praise be to God that we are so much more developed in our thinking. And our hearts are so much more enlightened. Right? Praise God. Now there was a story, there was a story in the Bible that I'm sure many of you have read where there was a, a man who had the exact same attitude. A Pharisee who stood in the temple and in front of God and everybody that was there, he praised himself. And he said what? He said, God, thank you so much that I am not like that sinning tax collector over there. God, I do the right thing and I give what I'm supposed to give and, 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 I, keep, and I keep the Sabbath and I keep your law. And God, and this is referring back to, Pastor Brian said this when we were going through Luke, God, you are lucky to have me on your team. That is exactly who we are if we believe that we are beyond worshiping idols. Because idols can very easily become something that is not tangible. Something that is intangible. Wealth, power, acceptance, position, significance, pleasure, fame, peace, political party or preference, talent, love, beauty, security. Doriani says that we hope that our pursuit of these things will eventually reward us. That's why we make them our idols and we chase after them because they want them to do, we want them to do something for us. Serve me. But the truth of the matter is that any idol that we erect and raise up for ourselves, they cannot bear the weight of our hopes. They fall short of our expectations. They fail us. And they cause us distress. If my God, the idol that I raise up is wealth, and I do what, ironically, I, whatever the cost for me to build wealth, then all of a sudden there is a sharp downturn in the economy or a crash and that wealth is hit hard. How does that make me feel? It fails. It doesn't serve me. It causes me distress, depression. And any one of those things that I named off, the same thing, power, significance, fame, peace, uh, acceptance. If I, if I feel, if I'm in a place where I have to be accepted by everybody, I have to be pleasing to everybody, no matter what the cost may be, then what happens in the moment where you feel rejected? That idol causes you distress is not serving you the way that you intend for it to. In contrast, God's Word tells us this. Paul writes two different places. Colossians 3.5 Put to death, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Idolatry is this umbrella category here that includes all of those things. It is idolatry to... Practice any of those things. And Paul says, put those things to death. Philippians 3, 19, he says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Because the truth is, is that these appetites that we have can never be fully satisfied by any of these things that we're looking for it in. The truth of the matter is that Jesus, is the lone, Jesus alone is the one who is able to satisfy us because we are made in His image. 
We are His creation. So the final question that I want to pose to you today, and if you're taking notes, please, or you have the means, please, I encourage you to write this down and ponder this. Do you harness your desires to please God? Do you harness your desires to please God? Or do you allow your desires to become God? Or do you allow your desires to become God? All of those things that I mentioned earlier are morally neutral. They're not sinful in and of themselves. We know that the Bible says that the root of of all kinds of evil is the love of money, is not money itself. So what that says, these things that are morally neutral is all about the person that is behind them. What is the heart of the individual behind it? Do you harness your desires to please God or do you allow your desires to become God? Now next week, and I I guess I'm kind of giving myself away, I will be here again with you next week, so please don't miss out. (laughs) Next week, we're going to get into a detailed depiction of actions that reflect the cognitive choices that the ungodly and the unrighteous have made. Today, we only got so far as the mind Futile thinking, the heart becomes darkened. That's as far as we got today. But the next logical step is what happens here in our actions. How does that come out? Because actions are always a product of our thinking. As we think, so we do. I wanted to take some time this morning to talk about one thing in relation to this. I realize that in many sermons that you hear from from this pulpit... Especially, especially like the one that you're hearing today, what you get is you get this large dose of sin is bad and we are sinners, but there's good news and that's the gospel. You get that every Sunday. I understand. What, it, what, what has broken my heart on more than one occasion in the four years that I've been with you here at Wildwood is to hear somebody say, why do I need to hear the gospel every Sunday? I know the gospel. Just move on to something else. I don't need to hear that I'm a sinner every single day. I know that I sin and I know I'm forgiven. Move on to something else. I don't mean to to offend anyone, but speaking the truth in love, if you harbor a bad feeling towards the gospel being preached every Sunday from this pulpit, if you harbor bad feelings towards hearing that the reality of sinners is that they're under God's just wrath, then you believe, what I I would posit that you believe, is that we here in this pulpit have developed a tunnel vision. And you know what I mean by tunnel vision? Tunnel vision is this tendency to focus on one singular object while simultaneously blurring out everything else that's around it. Well, What does that mean in this context? What I mean by tunnel vision from, from this perspective is that what we are preaching, the gospel of which we are unashamed, is only for you. It's only for you. But on the contrary, well, what I'm going to say is that it's not. You believe that you're the sole audience for the message, that we alone are calling you out as a sinner. On the contrary, I promise you, we do not have this tunnel vision because the gospel is the power of God for everyone who believes. And the men who fill this pulpit, the men who stand up here and preach God's word to you, we are sinners as much as you in need of grace and forgiveness from Jesus. 
And so my encouragement to you is when you hear the gospel for the 110 millionth time from this pulpit, instead of, instead of taking the perspective of, here we go again, or when you hear again that sinners are under God's just condemnation, I want to encourage you to turn it to praise and thankfulness. God praise you for making a way where there was no way for salvation. Jesus, thank you for the cross and for your resurrection, which provides salvation for me. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you are no longer under condemnation. Romans, chapters later, spells that out. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Turn it to praise and thankfulness for what God has done in your life through the gospel. Second, turn it to prayer. This is what I meant by this is not tunnel vision. Father, if there are people in here today that do not know this truth, open their eyes to it. Open their eyes to the truth of their sin. That they are dead in their trespasses and sins and that the, the righteous and just and holy condemnation of God rests on their sin. And they are subject to it. Holy Spirit, bring conviction that their hearts may see the truth of their need for a Savior, and that is Jesus. Father, may today be the day of their salvation. We preach this gospel because it's not just about you and me. For God so loved the world. I want to circle back to verse number 18 where we began. Yes, the wrath of God has been revealed against sin, including idolatry. And this is the reason that Paul is going to write later, six chapters later in Romans 7, 7. He's going to write this. This is the reason for the giving of the law. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. What Paul is implying here is that while God is immutable, that is unchanging, God could have just left us alone in our sin. He could have left us alone just to die in it and to be separated from Him forever. Yet in His mercy, He gave the law, according to Romans 7, 7 a, to show us that we are in opposition to God, that we are enemies of Him through our sin. And now that we're armed with that truth, Paul is writing in Romans 1, and he's telling us because of that sin that we are in enemies with God and we are subject to God's just and righteous wrath. But praise God. Just as He re mercifully revealed our sin through the law, which is His Word, and is now mercifully revealing the just consequence, payment, penalty for our sin, which is His wrath, He still does not abandon us there. Because the inverse of Romans 1.18 is also true, where we saw, as the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all sin, so also the mercy of God is revealed from heaven despite sin. Romans 1.17 encapsulated that, spelled that out very specifically, where it says the, the, uh, the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven. This inverse is wrapped up in the verse prior, Romans 1.16, the gospel, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 5, 6 and 8. Romans 5, 8 is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 8. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
So my encouragement to you today is do not ignore the clear warning. Do not dismiss that there is nothing to worry about. Do not harbor this carry-on-as-normal perspective. If you are a non-Christian here today, I'm telling you that what God's Word says to you, that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And you are under just condemnation because of your sins. So was I. So was I. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was under just condemnation too. But the gospel. But the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to anyone and everyone who believes, including you. Jesus has taken the wrath of God upon Himself for your sin and for my sin. And so my encouragement to you today is to repent and turn from your sins. And He will, 1 John 1, 9, He will save you. He is faithful and just to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This is a warning. God's wrath will be poured out on sin. It will be poured out on sin. Christian, my encouragement to you this morning is that while through Jesus we are no longer subject to God's wrath, we're not. Praise God, right? Is anybody excited about that? A few. I know you mean it, even though you didn't show it. We are no longer subject to God's wrath, but you know someone who is. You know someone who is. You may have already had a conversation with them this morning, or you may see them at work tomorrow. You know someone who is. You know someone right now who is still under God's just condemnation because they have not yet turned to Jesus. Who is going to warn them if not you? Who is going to warn them if not you? We especially, church, we especially cannot carry on as normal as if this were peacetime. Because there is something to worry about. We cannot carry on as if it's peacetime, as if there was nothing to worry about, because there is a war, a spiritual war in church. We are called to it, whether it's across the street or across the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. And thank you for your word, where in your mercy, you have revealed to us our true nature, that we are plagued by sin and that we have freely chosen to sin and sin against You. And because of that sin, we are under Your perfect, righteous, and justified judgment. The Lord Jesus, I thank You that You did not leave us there, but rather that You came from heaven and You took our place on the cross where You endured the wrath of God for my sin, for our sin. Jesus, all praise and all honor and glory be to you. And I pray exactly what my encouragement was a moment ago, that if there is someone in here this morning that does not know the truth of what you have done, Lord Jesus, for them, that you came to suffer and die, you were buried and you rose again so that they may have salvation through faith. Lord, I pray that this morning, that Holy Spirit, that you will convict their hearts towards that and that this morning that they will cry out to you and repent of their sins and trust you, Lord Jesus, for salvation. Father, for us as a church, we know people who still stand under just condemnation. I pray that you would reveal to us, Lord, put on our hearts people that we know that we need to take this gospel to. 
And Lord, I know that that is a scary thing. And Father, I pray that you would rid us of any anxiety, of any fear, of any hesitation to take the gospel to people who don't know. Whether that's within our own families, within our neighborhoods, within our workplaces, or around the world. Father, would you strengthen us as a church to be good stewards of the gospel message that you have given us either until we pass from this life and come home to you or Jesus, until you come back, whichever happens first. Lord, use us for your honor and for your glory. And Lord, now together, we as a church are going to sing together. There is a fountain filled with blood that was drawn from your veins, Lord Jesus. Thank you for that. We honor you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.